This morning we are continuing in our sermon series in Matthew. We are in the run-up to Easter. Easter's at the end of last, uh, next month. And the scripture that we're going to hit this morning is so powerful. Um, it's such a powerful moment. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's about to be arrested. Judas has betrayed him. And at some point he slipped out of the Last Supper. We're picking up from where uh, Paul left us last week. And he, Jesus takes his disciples after the last supper and he heads to a usual spot where they go. Um, and, uh, and what we read last week is where we've kind of just left it hanging is uh, as Judas slips off into the darkness, there's this whole thing about Peter, his disciple, his most loyal, his most zealous um, disciple, and he has made the point, been a big song and dance about his loyalty to Jesus. And Jesus has just warned his disciples and said that, you know, you, you're all going to abandon me. And, you know, Peter kind of looks around the room and thinks, yeah, I see what you're saying, Jesus. This lot will leave you, you know. But not me, not me, you know, and thumps his chest and not I. And that's where it kind of left us last week. And now we continue from that moment going into the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's just pray. Father, as we open your scripture, would you come and speak to us? Would you teach us about your love, about your grace, about your rescue mission? And Father, I pray that we would just be willing to receive this morning, that we'd be willing to be changed by you. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Okay, so we're going to read from Matthew 26. It's on the screen. Uh, we're going to go from 36 to 56. If you have your Bibles with you, I just recommend you open it. Um, but it's on the screen if you don't have, it, have one. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for the cup to be taken away from me, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back. He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed for the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with, a, with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. 
Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put up disposal more than 12 legions of angels but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way in that hour Jesus said to the crowd am I leading a rebellion that you have come come out with swords and clubs to capture me every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then what happened? Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Okay, so this year um, is uh, there going to be two countries, uh, uh, very significant countries who are going to have elections. One is here in the UK. The other one is in the US. And um, it, it's it's a big thing when it, when it happens. And, and leadership in the world and with politicians, it's really important that you look good and composed and calm and authoritative and in control. And, you know, it's important you have a nice suit and a nice haircut, but it's really important how you are perceived to save face. And this year's the elections happen in the, uh, in the UK and, and the US. The US ones are always a bit funnier from a distance, right? Not so funny if you live in there. Uh, but, but both of these countries will have elections. And, and, and what will be uh, clear, regardless of who it is, which political party, which political leader, is they will have a strategy in place. And that is to maximize their strengths, to make themselves look very good, and to minimize their weaknesses. Don't let anybody see weaknesses. Um, it, it could be the difference between someone thinking you're right to lead and not right to lead. It could be, uh, it, it's okay to point out in the opposing person what's wrong with them. Have you seen those adverts like that where they don't talk about themselves, they just talk about how bad the other person is? It's okay to point out the weaknesses in other people, but don't let anybody see any weakness in you. Maximize your strengths. And the incredible thing about this scripture, <laughs> the incredible thing about this scripture is that there are no games being played. Jesus is not interested about how he's perceived in this moment. What we're reading about Jesus is raw. It's unfiltered. It's, it's just totally a moment of Jesus who is fully God and yet who is fully human. And he's wrestling with everything that he is about to deal with. Jesus in this moment, is, he's been betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. He knows that his disciples are about to abandon him and to leave him. He knows he's about to be rejected by his own people. And he knows he's about to be tortured and murdered like a criminal by the Romans. This is such a powerful piece of scripture. But in reality, the truth is, is that probably, I doubt there's anybody in this room who hasn't heard this account of Jesus before. No doubt many in the room have, have heard this account being read to them many times, or maybe you've even heard a sermon on it many times. Maybe you've preached on it many times. And we see it in paintings, we see it in movies. And the problem is, is that being so familiar with a story like this, it can often lead to indifference. 
Uh, yeah, 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 I've heard this one before. Yeah, the garden thing. Yeah, I know about that. And he said, you know, not my will, but yours. Yeah, it was really powerful, really good, right? Like, uh, we can be a bit indifferent about it. And if we're not careful that we're going to be left with this inability to truly reflect on the significance of this moment and just how powerful it is. This moment of real weakness before his father, Jesus approaches God in this moment of needing him to really do something in him. So with that being said, as we just open this up together, I want to just encourage you to kind of try and peel away all of those previous sermons and just to say, Holy Spirit, help me just to see your scripture afresh this morning. Help me to understand this moment afresh. So, immediately after, Jesus has just had the final, uh, this last supper with his disciples and he takes the disciples afterwards and goes to the Gethsemane. I've got a slide here with a, a map on it um, and you can see here, in the bottom left-hand corner there is the, uh, where we believe the Last Supper happened, the upper room. And he takes them all the way around the city to Gethsemane, which is, at, we believe, at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Um, that's, where it, that's where it is. I don't know if you like maps like me. I just love a map. Um, and Israel's much bigger now. Uh, and Jerusalem's grown massively as a consequence. But we see that Gethsemane, he's gone right round the other side of the city. And, and Gethsemane, it literally means, the word means olive press. Um, and it probably means, it's not just like, if you've ever been to kind of the Mediterranean, there's olive trees every, everywhere, right? Like scattered everywhere. If you've ever been somewhere like Greece. But this was probably more cultivated than that. It would have been a walled off garden. It would have been designed to be an olive press to get maximum fruit out of the trees. It was cultivated and it was developed. Peter Lang, uh, John Peter Lang, he says, it would have been a piece of land at the foot of Mount of Olives, which was provided with an olive press, and it probably had a house attached. It probably was a little dwelling place. It's a well-known place that Jesus and his disciples would retire to, and the authorities were aware of it, weren't aware of it, sorry. And actually, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin are looking to kill Jesus, when they're plotting to kill him, the problem is they don't know where him and his disciples are going on an evening. This is the usual place they would go to. It was a place where Jesus and his disciples were, were welcomed. Without question, they were able to go there when they needed to. And when they get there, Jesus asked his three closest disciples, Peter, John, and James, to come with him. And he leaves the rest of the disciples and and he kind of just takes his closest disciples. These are, you know, these are his, these are his boys. He takes them with him. And, he, and when he gets into like this inner circle, goes away from the rest of them, we just see him, he starts to buckle. He starts to break. And we're told that in this moment, Matthew tells us he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says, stay here and keep watch with me. Just pray with me. I just need you to pray with me. And the reality is here is that Jesus' anguish, it's, it's, it's literally reached a maximum level. It's like a card, you know, when you need to change gear and you know, revs are on the maximum, you need to change gear quickly. Jesus is at his maximum revs here. He's, he's bubbling over. And he's wrestling with the price that's required 
for paying for the sins of the world. Matthew tells us he goes a little bit further than his disciples. He says, you stay here and pray. I'm just going to go over here. And, and as he goes, his, his, his legs fail him. His knees buckle. He ends up face down in the dirt. And he says, Father, would this, is it possible for this cup to be taken from me? And cup, what, what is it? This cup, you know, we, it's not something we use today, this cup. Um, and the cup, the phrase that he's using is deeply symbolic. It's so packed full of meaning. Often in the Old Testament, when, the, when it's described, the wrath of God is described, it would be, uh, as, as the wrath of God would come against sin, it's described in this metaphor of a cup. In Isaiah 51, 17, <clears throat> speaking about God's judgment, Isaiah says, wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup of the Lord's fury. You have drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drops. It's this pouring out on, of God's judgment on sin. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine in judgment. And all the wicked must drink it, draining it to its dregs, to the dregs. The cup is a symbol of God's wrath being poured out against all of the wrongdoing, the sin of the world, the selfishness, the evil desires, all of the death that we've brought into this world through our sin, through our disobedience towards God, from our rebellion. From, from right from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and their original sin, that disobedience of God. And God promises one day that wrath, His wrath would come against sin. His judgment would be poured out. And like it says in the psalm, it, it's almost, it's frothing, it's bubbling, it's mixed with spices, it's, it's almost ready to be poured out. It's, it's, it's bubbling over. And Jesus by rights, he's, he's sat in the garden and he's, he, he, he doesn't need to drink from the cup. He's innocent of sin. He's righteous. He's, 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 he's not guilty of any wrongdoing. And yet before him is this choice. It's not his cup, but the choice is that he drinks it on our behalf to take the punishment, this wrath of God upon our sin, to take the punishment for you and for me and to, to drink it himself. And here in this moment, Jesus is in com he completely understands what the Father's plan is for his judgment to be poured out and his wrath against sin to be satisfied in the death of the only perfect person, his Son. The Lamb of God. That God's wrath and his punishment would be completely satisfied in his sacrifice. And it, it wasn't just the physical judgment that we're about to read through in these coming weeks that the Romans would inflict the most torturous and embarrassing and humiliating death upon him. But it was, all a, it was about the cup. It was about God's wrath. And in his death, God's wrath would be satisfied. All the Gospels... They emphasize the enormity, the strain that Jesus felt in this moment in the garden. As his knees buckled, as his face is on the ground, the enormity. Luke tells us that his, his, he's got blood coming out of his sweat paws. He's so stressed. 
A.T. Robertson, he's a Southern Baptist um, scholar in the US. He says, the master, Jesus, is about to taste the bitter dregs of the cup of death for the sin of the world. He instinctively shrank from the cup, but instantly surrendered his will to the fathers and drank it to the last drop. Evidently, in this moment, Jesus was tempted to draw back from the cross, but driven by his love for the Father and by his love for you, Jesus in the garden won the power to go to Calvary. Where is it that Jesus lands it again and again? Father, not my will, but yours. Passing his test in the garden, he says, not my will, but yours. You know, I don't know everybody in this room and, and I don't know if everybody in this room would call themselves a follower of Jesus, but whether or not you are a follower of Jesus, we are all at some point going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't mean physically, you know, you, we're not putting on chartered plans, but, but actually spiritually at some point in your life, you will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there are things that go on in our lives where we're faced with the inner the inevitable uh, despair and sadness of situations where we're left in just pure anguish, where we face this gut-wrenching pain of things that have happened or are happening in our lives and then we just have to walk into them. You know, um, almost six years ago, Jenny and I were uh, pregnant with uh, Hannah. Six years ago, we were pregnant with Hannah. And um, I wasn't pregnant, you understand. Jenny was pregnant that lesson's next week. Um, uh, we, we were told, but we were told while we were pregnant that there was an issue with Hannah's kidneys. There was a, an issue that was ongoing that they were really concerned about. And because of the concern, we were sent to a specialist children's hospital in Ontario. It's where we were living at the time. And we had to travel there. And we had tests done before, uh, before uh, she was born. And then after she was born, we had to go back and the, the issue wasn't getting any better. Before we were told that she needed two rounds of surgery to help correct what was wrong, uh, it needed doing right away. Um, and I remember just this sense of just this gut-wrenching pain, this most precious thing God had ever given me. Uh, and she was, and, she, and the doctors are saying, we're going to have to, you know, anesthetize her and she's going to have to have surgery before she was even six months old. And this is what she looked like, by the way, the day before her surgery. I know, she was tiny. And I remember in the hospital, when we got the news that she's going to need surgery to fix this and we're going to have to do it now. And I remember saying to Jenny, oh, I'm just going to use the toilet before we go home. And I remember going into the toilet and just, just weeping before God. And saying, God, like, why? Why, why is that? Why are you doing this? What, what are you doing? And, and um, she had the surgery, um, and she she it was it was done and it was over, and she was in so much pain, bless her. And we kind of had to make do in this little hospital room for a few nights while she recovered. And it was just one of the hardest things we've ever been through. Our family was so far away, and we felt so alone, and we felt so sad, and the pain was so gut wrenching. But we just had to push through. We had to do it, and. It was pretty much successful. She still hasn't got two functioning kidneys. We'll break that to her when she's older. Um, but she, she's, she's, she's fitting well. She's doing great. And like Jesus in the garden, 
He knew the pain that he was about to walk through. And maybe you've heard some things like that. You know, the words this morning were about faith. God given us faith for what we're about to walk through. Anne and Chris's testimony was just perfect this morning about just trusting in God and stepping out in faith. It was so perfect. But maybe you've had those words spoken to you. I'm sorry to tell you that they didn't make it. Maybe you've been told they've only got a few months to go. Maybe you've been told the treatment wasn't successful. Maybe the company you love told you, we're going to have to let you go. Those moments in your life that you face or will face, where your body gives, your knees buckle, and you find yourself on, the, on your face and just saying, Father, help me. Help me. I'm weak. Jesus, in the midst of this moment, he says, Father, I trust you. And not my will, but your will be done. And as his disciples, as his children, it's about saying, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. And not my will, but your will be done. Because I know you love me. I know you have the best for me. And even when I would change these plans, I'm still going to say, Lord, not my will, but your will. So after this huge wrestling match, this spiritual wrestling match that Jesus has in the garden, he goes to his disciples and what are they doing? <laughs> They're sleeping. And you can imagine it's been a long day for them. They've had a big meal. <laughs> that lamb's sitting heavy, you know. We've all had those lamb dinners. And Matthew even tells us their eyes are heavy. And Jesus asked them to pray, pray that you won't fall into temptation. Jesus knows the help that they're going to need in the hours to come and in the days to come. And he says, you guys need to pray. Pray with me. And uh, remember Peter, just a, a few hours before, he's like, Jesus, everybody else is rubbish at this, but I am the Jesus follower, right? And then he's like, right? like, there's an irony there. You're supposed to giggle at him. I won't let you down, Jesus. And you see, when Jesus wakes them, Jesus, he's, he's ready. He's been praying. He's ready for what's about to happen. And he says to the disciples, he warned them, watch and pray that you won't fall into temptation. And then Jesus says, the spirit is willing. These guys are well up for following me, but the flesh is weak. They were so eager. They were so sure and certain of their ability to stay faithful to Jesus, regardless of what was going to happen. And Peter couldn't be more sure, but the eagerness would be no match for the flesh. And within minutes, they'll, they will desert Jesus. And while Jesus is talking with them, Judas arrives. They probably saw the torches in the distance, along with his armed men who have been sent to arrest Jesus. And they've got swords and clubs, and along with the, some of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And, and maybe they've been to the upper room first to check if he's there, because maybe that Judas left in there. It doesn't tell us, but, but they end up in this place where nobody knew where Jesus was, but Judas knew. And I'd just like to just say a couple of things. First is... 
Judas has to walk up and kiss Jesus. This is something that happens. And this is, I think, surely everybody knew what Jesus looked like at this point. But actually, we live in an age of phones and cameras and videos and all those types of things. If I said to you the name I don't know, Rick Stein, like TV chef, you'd probably, most of you would have an idea of what he looks like. Or if I said to you Mo Farah, right, like most of you would have an image. It's a very different time. Some of these people who come to arrest Jesus probably didn't even know what he looked like. And it's dark, right? They're in a, they're in a garden. It's dark there. There's no street lights. So Judas makes this point of going to Jesus and kissing him on the cheek and says, hello, Rabbi. <laughs> and it's this mocking statement. How can he call him a teacher in this moment as he's betraying him and indicating who to arrest? And Jesus thought he's composed. He's ready. He's had his wrestling match. He's made his mind up. And he says, do what you came for, friend. Peter, out of complete impulse, whoosh, pulls out his sword, chops off one of their ears. And I just wonder if he'd been praying for the last three hours like Jesus had, if that would have been what his response was. Jesus rebukes him immediately. And once again, in this narrative towards the cross, Jesus reminds everybody that he is the one in control of the narrative. He is the one choosing to lay down his life. And he says, come on, I just need to say the word to my father. And he would put at my disposal 12 legions of angels. A, a Roman legion was 6,000, that's 72,000 angels. Uh, just a word would be there to, to protect Jesus. But Jesus has been through this, he's made up his mind, and out of his love for his people, he will lay down his life. He's arrested, and just like Jesus said, the sheep are scattered. A couple of things to finish. I'm going to have to wrap this up. Looking at Jesus and his disciples in this moment, what we see in his disciples is two extremes. The first extreme that we see from his disciples is complete and utter assurance in themselves. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. It's a warning to us. We see this certainty from Peter, this self-assurance of his commitment to Jesus and his, self, his commitment and his belief in himself and what he can do, it turned into arrogance. He was so convinced that he couldn't fail. Even when Jesus warns him clearly, Peter thought, no, not me. Any of everybody else, of course, but not me. It's telling us, Scripture tells us not to be smug in our faith, in how strong we are in Jesus, because we fall into the sin of self. Of self. Thinking that we're brilliant. Aren't we fantastic followers of Jesus? We've got this thing nailed. And personally, in my life, honestly, this is such a trap to fall into. Where we think that we're pretty much sorted. Yeah, we might have a couple of things Jesus will figure out before we die. But I'm pretty much there. I'm, I'm good at this Jesus thing. Oh yeah, I know all the songs, right? I'm at church most weeks. Check the, check the register, right? We need to be really careful that we don't become stuck in the way that we are. That we're unable to take advice or warnings from our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
that we're unable to take advice or warnings from Scripture anymore because we've become so used to it. We're unable to see the traps that we're walking into because, oh, this Jesus thing, I've got it nailed. And anybody who comes and approaches you, hey, I think you just need to be careful. You sure that wasn't gossip? Be careful about that. Oh, no, I'm all right. I'm a good Jesus follower. We need to remain humble before Jesus. Peter must, can you imagine? Peter must have looked back at that night and think, why didn't I listen to him? When he said to me, I was going to deny it. Why didn't I just, why was I so prideful? Why didn't I listen to him? Why didn't I ask him and say, Jesus, help me not to. Help me not to deny you. How do I, how do I not do that? Why wasn't I moldable? Why wasn't I? And when he told me to stay up and pray, why didn't I stay up and pray? Why was I sleeping? What was I doing? Brothers and sisters, let's not get stuck there. Let's not, get stuck. Let's not, let's not be too proud or, man, I'm a good Jesus. But I don't need, to, don't need to worship in that way anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm all settled. So let's be moldable before God. Let's learn that we can reflect Jesus better every day. Jesus has never finished with us. We don't want to become stuck and arrogant in our faith. And Oh, we figure this out. But the Bible tells us this, we can take joy in this, be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is committed to you. Your commitment is to remain moldable and humble before him as God. Amen. Second and last point, I promise, is the opposite of the self-assured in the disciples. It's the disciples being dozy, and drowsy and sleepy. It's not, the, it's not the dwarfs, by the way. But in that half-asleep state, you, you know, they, they, even his closest followers, they fail to follow his, his simple command. Stay awake. Pray with me. Jesus wants his disciples to be awake and alert, to not to be caught up in what they want to do in the moment, but to listen to what Jesus is telling them to do. How true is it of church today that, you know, the church, the church today is in decline. We're so blessed to be part of a church that we get new people in the week, but so many churches don't. That's not the reality. The church is declining. And this next generation that's coming through, there's never been a generation that has been less interested in Jesus, less interested in church, less interested in the gospel. And do you know where the enemy wants you to be? He wants you to be sat on your sofa, watching Disney+, Plus, eating snacks, having a nap. Every night, that's what he wants from you. But Jesus says, go, make disciples. Make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If that means cancelling Netflix, cancelling Disney+, Plus, not finishing your Marvel you know, marathon that you're doing, cancel it. But the enemy wants us to be sleepy, to be dozy, to be inactive, to be unprepared when times of testing come our way and to flee like sheep without a shepherd. We're called to be a people who go. And why? Because his sacrifice was so costly to drink of the cup that wasn't his to drink. It was so incredible and magnificent what the Lamb of God was willing to do. God's only Son, in order that we wouldn't perish, 
And God's heart is that nobody perishes, that the price is paid for everybody. So let us be reminded this morning that we are in Christ, regardless of the challenges that come our way, regardless of the times that our bodies fail us and that we feel shaken inside to our core, that we can trust in a God that has sealed us in Christ, that we are hidden in the Son whom He loves and He has the best for us regardless of the circumstances and the trials that come our way. That's who we are. Let us not be arrogant and lack humility in in following Jesus, but let us be willing to be moulded, not confident in who we are, but in who He is. And let's get up. Let's go. Let's fix our lights. Let's hire a youth worker. Let's reach the next generation. I mean, I can't get any more excited for you. (laughs) You've got to get excited. Because God's kingdom is on the move. And yes, the church might be declining, but not here, not in Darlington. Why? Because I'm not sleeping. I'm praying. Would this house be a house of worship? Man, oh man, would this be a place of worship? Would we be not sleepy disciples? Not arrogant disciples who've learned it all, heard it all, but vulnerable, open-hearted, willing to follow Jesus. Willing to follow him. Let's pray.